Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Before we start today's episode, I want to give a shout-out to Industrial Revolutions Podcast. Industrial Revolutions covers the transformative period when fossil fuels created an unprecedented leap in human development, the greatest since the discovery of fire and agriculture. Recently, host Dave Broker interviewed me on why France didn't industrialize as rapidly as Britain. So, if you want to learn about one of the most important times in human history and hear me talk even more about France, be sure to check out Industrial Revolution's podcast. It's a great podcast with a fantastic host, and it covers one of the most fascinating periods of history, so be sure to check it out. Today we have a very special episode with the teacher who inspired me to become a historian, Taylor Morrow. When I was a teenager, my parents decided to enroll me in a few courses at Chemeketa Community College in Salem, Oregon over the summer so I could get a head start. I remember sitting down for an American history course and seeing Taylor Morrow come in with dreadlocks and a Bob Marley t-shirt or a Pan-African flag shirt. He usually lectured on minorities, women, and other maligned people, but gave them a level of dignity and respect. All the while, everything he said felt powerful and important. After taking a class with him, I was convinced I wanted to be a historian. I loved history since I was a kid, but Taylor showed how a historian could be a cool, inspiring person, which is what I still hope to be. Taylor Morrow was born and raised in Princeton, New Jersey, and attended some of the best public schools in the nation, which gave him an appreciation for education. He then attended Indiana University Bloomington and earned a B.A. with a double major in history and telecommunications. He then acquired an M.A. in history from Ball State, where he specialized in 20th century U.S. history and a minor in interwar Europe. In fall 2004, his first book was published, Reconciling the Past, A Brief History of Race Relations in Muncie, Indiana. Since then, he has consistently worked on the history of race relations in the United States. Aside from academics, Taylor has lived an incredible life, traveling around the country with a band, bartending, managing a restaurant, and leading brown bags at Chemeketa, where he hosts conversations on social issues. On December 22, 2018, he had his first and only amateur MMA fight, which he won in a unanimous decision. And yes, we do touch on that in the beginning of the show. In this episode, Taylor gives a guest lecture on African Americans serving in World War I and World War II France. This experience had a profound effect on African Americans because France was desegregated and considerably more tolerant for people of color. The experience of being treated as mostly equal to whites in France left an impression on those soldiers who returned to the segregationist South and spurred on momentous changes in the African American community. With that, please enjoy this interview and guest lecture with my inspiration, Taylor Morrow. 
you had an MMA fight. Mm-hmm. Was it last year? Yeah, yeah last December, winter. December twenty second, two thousand eighteen. How do you go from being a person that teaches history for a living mm-hmm. to getting in the ring and doing an MMA fight? Want to tell us about that? Yeah. So uh, I've always been into lifting weights. I've always been into sports and athletics. Um, and I've always been into kind of reading and history. But uh, six and a half years ago, I was like, man, I need to start doing different types of exercises versus just lifting. And then uh, I went to this gym that a friend of mine had recommended from my hometown. And when I first moved to Oregon uh, 15 years ago, I'd say it was like I was here like a year and I w- went to Blockbuster. <laughs> there goes like an early like 2000 it's like 2005 that's a two thousand. yeah probably right we're no, old. yeah yeah that's right exactly we're like wait we gotta go get a video let's watch a video with my kid right so we're my kid taking my kid to blockbuster and so we're in blockbuster and some guy i went to high school with man like his sister she was uh like in my class and so like i, I knew this kid jay and jay was like hey man you should come train at this gym it's on mlk and he's like, a straight blast. He's like, you would love it. He's like, we do jujitsu and MMA, and I never did it. And then, like, I don't know, six years later, five years later, I was like, man, I want to try it. And they were on 42nd, so I went to the gym and, uh, and then started Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, doing, and, and doing stand-up, their boxing program, uh, their mixed martial arts program. And then, uh, yeah, I just did that and enjoyed that for a while. I thought about doing a fight, like... For my forty-fifth birthday, and that was like about three years ago, and I was like, "All right," I started doing some training, and I just couldn't do it because I wasn't that disciplined. Uh, and then uh, about four years ago, uh, four years ago, my sister died, and so that was like one like one of the first times I've and I've had to confront death a lot, like, you know, close friends dying, but it was like one of the closest people my age and closest people in my family that died. Uh, and then, like, two years ago, my other sister died, and a couple other people in my family died, and that's really made me think about kind of my life and what I want to do, right? Like, like things that I can do at this moment, and, 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 and then finding a way to do that. And so I came to the decision. I was like, man, I can do a fight. I was like, I love fighting. Right. <laughs> fighting has been something I did as a little kid. I'd, I'd be, I got in, I'd probably say before I was in high school, a dozen to 18 fights, you know, just fighting as a little kid. And so how many of them did you start? Oh, a lot. (laughs) Yeah, totally. A lot. Okay. Yeah. In college, I used to love to just randomly start fights. Yeah. I started some random fights in college. And so I was like, I'm going to do this. And so I got really disciplined and I, and I was like, the smartest way to do it though, is to cut weight, get down to like 135 pounds. I typically walk around like 160, 165 pounds. And so that meant that I had to be disciplined in eating meant I had to be disciplined in my training, um, and I just got a really good gym and really good coaches where our philosophy is at practice. We don't try to beat each other up, right? We're not trying to give each other concussions in practice. We're trying to make it so that we can do this. Like, I'm a 47-year-old person. I left each practice being like, man, I can do this the next day. So, before I turn it over to you and we uh, enlighten the masses, because it looks like the, the levels are good. Awesome. Uh, I did want to ask... A little bit about you. Sure. And, yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. Start out. Yeah. This so conversation because yeah. well, let me let me just start because uh, so basically when I was uh, mid-teens, my parents thought it would be good to put me in a community college <laughs> class, get used to that whole setting, and I remember uh, taking classes with you, mm-hmm. and you would show up 
with your dreadlocks in a Bob Marley t-shirt and you would talk about justice and fighting the power. So, um, and that really inspired me just because you made history come alive. So as someone who is not your typical history teacher, and I say that in the best possible means, so where do you see yourself in the history profession? Excellent, man. So I was telling my wife that too. I was like, man, Carrie's going to remember seeing him. When he was, he was like 15 or 16 in my class. And I think the thing that I, that I, that I, appreciated most about you. I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about you for a second. That's it's, perfectly fine. It's like at a 15, 16-year-old, you wrote better than 90% of the class. Mm-hmm. And I like, and that's like the biggest thing that community college students struggle with is writing. And your writing at that that age was, was, was just, I was taken aback because it was very good. <laughs> it was awesome, man. Um, and then your ability to participate in class, uh, it, was, it was great. And I really appreciate like that I was able to inspire you. Um, so like to be... I, I will get this. So where I came out to get in my profession and be a historian was where I was raised was Princeton, New Jersey. Like it really just started in my house. It started with having this this privilege of having a, a, a library in my freaking home. I had two complete sets of encyclopedias. I had one from 1968. So this is like when I grew up in the, I grew up in the 70s, 80s. I had one from like 1968. And they had one from 1923. I have like this this vintage 1923, complete 1923 uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> That's going to be mine. Like, 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 I'm so excited. And so it's like a lot of the information is like factually completely incorrect and wrong and racially biased. But it's awesome because like I grew up understanding like this was how the interpretations used to be. And then seeing how they transition to the, to the modern interpretations. And then I had lots of books that were nonfiction. Like one of the first books I remember reading about was about Francis Marion. Like horrible, I mean, yeah, I'm going to be brutal. Horribly racist human being. Uh, uh, he was a southerner um, during the Revolutionary War, known as the Swamp Fox, right? This guy that was able to lead revolutionary troops in the South, like one of the kind of apexes of, of, of guerrilla warfare during the Revolutionary War, and, and, and fight for America's freedom, but he also was a, was, a, was a slave owner, right? He grew up in this family on a plantation. So it was interesting, you know, they, they, it was a children's book, so they talked about the relationship of him with this kid that was his slave as it was his friend, but you clearly knew it was his slave, right? The, the power dynamic was clear, that this kid was not his friend, right? Like, I, I, yeah, that might have been how they may be portrayed it to each other, but the power dynamic was this kid was owned by this other kid. And when he became an adult, he would be this kid's, right, this adult's male servant, right, his most trusted male servant. And that was how he was being groomed. But then I got to see, like, if it wasn't for Francis Marion, the Revolutionary War might not have been successful for the Patriots because of his ability growing up in the South with understanding how to use a gun, understanding how to track Right, understanding how to live the life of, 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 of a frontiers person fighting these rigid, you know, you know uh, British soldiers. So it was, it, that was like really the first book that, that I read that really got me into, in, into history. It was like reading the, the history of Francis Marion, uh, the Swamp Fox. And then I grew up in Princeton. So the education I got was the best education, right, in the country. Right? I went to a public school. That was surrounded by some of the most elite private schools 
um, that was very liberal, that had a lot of rigor. Um, and then I grew up around a lot of really middle class elite parents whose children, like I went and rode the school bus with. Uh, and I was bused too. Like I believe in busing. I was bused. Like I, there was an elementary school behind my house that I could have walked to in three minutes. But every day I had to get up, get on the school, get on, go sit on the corner, wait for the school buses, even in the cold, and ride a bus. But that's the only way my town would have been integrated, because all the people in my neighborhood are blacks or Italians. So if it wasn't, there was no busing. Princeton would have, like the kids I would have ended up in high school with, would have never gone to school with a black person, right, or someone that was a minority. So it would have been like really weird for them. So instead, what they chose to do was to divide up the school, like the, the, the school board chose to, you know, right? They didn't call it busing. They just said, we're going to make our boundaries so that we divide up the black community, right? They're like, we're going to put black people in your school. <laughs> and and it, it was awesome because I grew up making really great friends and whose parents always believed in me. You know, most of my teachers believed in me my entire life. And the expectation was like, you go to college. And so like having in this library in my home, um, developing a, a thirst for reading, but I would say developing a thirst for nonfiction. Like I, 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 I read a lot of fiction, but nonfiction was like so much, uh, so much more alive than, than than fiction. Fiction's cool; it has its place. But I like nonfiction because, um, particularly history, because it, it 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 has a tendency to leave out or try to leave out what's vague. Right? Try to leave out like. Uh, uh, this this idea that you can interpret it yourself. It, it may you know in general history tries to make an argument or or central point, and then show how this point you know is reflected in in in, in uh, uh, the evidence, <laughs> you know, and that's that's very different than fiction. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you just one question yeah. before we get to your actual sure. part, yeah. Yeah. which is uh, I essentially want to get at your philosophy of teaching history because uh, I don't know if yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you still do this but when I was taking classes you led brown bags mm -hmm. and you talked about uh, social justice sure, all yeah, that sort yeah. of thing yeah. so um let's yeah totally I'll get right yeah my philosophy in teaching is I try to really you know I try to paint a picture or at least show you know with, with evidence and facts uh a history of particularly that that reflects the experience of the human being right and so i think that 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 means it's a broad-based experience it's an experience that's you know in 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 a multi you know multiplicity of groups whether it's you know uh leaders right like you know the american model um and the traditional model has this has had a tendency to reflect on kind of the top down, right? This idea that, hey, you right, people can better understand if you talk about the leaders, you talk about the big events. But I have a, you know, I was, I went to college and, and at Ball State, my mentor raised me in this idea that it's kind of a, it's not a top down, it's this balance, it's this model of you take a top down and a bottom up approach, right? You look at kind of, yeah, let's look at some big events, but let's look at, right, this might be the people, but who lifted these people? Right. How did these structures come about? What brought about, you know, these these really important pieces of change? And I think that's what's great about history is that, you know, if you have a philosophy where you look at the experiences of, of the of, of, of the people that are shown through the evidence, it's not a picture that's 
black or white. It's not a picture that's easy to digest. It's a complex picture. And I would say that's my philosophy is to teach people that we live in a complex world. And, and, and in living in a complex world, uh, and particularly as living as Americans in a complex world, we have this privilege in these, this, this place where we come from that is different than any other point in the species in, in the history of our species. We come from, as, as, as people in the Western world, from this place where we can deliver, whether it's knowledge, whether it's uh, finance, whether it's uh, technology, right? we can deliver things at a rapid rate that's never been seen or done before in, 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 the, in the human you know, experience. And so we have a responsibility, I would say, and that's what I tell my students. It's like, you know, you can deny that privilege happens, right? But I'll tell you that I, you know, I'm more privileged than 90% of the Oregonians I meet. Right, I have way more pollutants than them, but they will never understand what it means to be black. Right, so that, that that doesn't mean like you know as a black person I don't have more privilege than them. It means like I have this you know as a white person they have different privilege than I do, and that privilege is like pervasive throughout the country. Right, but like my access to the opportunity, my access to knowledge, my access to progress, my access to being successful was all predicated on a privilege that I had, which was being born in Princeton, New Jersey. And I fundamentally believe, like, as a human being, I have a responsibility um, to make the world a better place so that we can, right, so that that privilege that I have, this thing like, man, how do I end up this random-ass punk kid born in Princeton, New Jersey that has, like, been able to, like, get a nice home, have awesome children, have great friends, eat, have access to great food, right, have access to great water, right, then I need to try to make the world a better place, and that's what I hope to get out to my students through history is that like you all have privilege whether you you choose to recognize it or not right but let's look at what history was and what history is and see you know how how it relates to to the things that you might take for granted yeah i that is a pretty fantastic philosophy (laughs) well it's one that i definitely agree with it's essentially based on the idea of intersectionality Yeah, yeah yeah unfortunately i think even some academics really mm-hmm. lose. I'm not going to go into specifics, but I, um, I, well, I'll just I'll just say, being in academia, mm-hmm. I've had people who literally like their perspective is that everything is 100% race, whether mm-hmm. it's um, you know some. Uh, okay, I won't get into specifics, yeah. but, but I'll just say one thing. I um, I got into a debate with a person, and they were trying to argue that race is more important than class because I was making the point that what's interesting is that when you look at the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and all of um, the killing of black people, if you look at the statistics, at least from what I can Mm -hmm. tell, more poor whites are being killed than middle class or upper class blacks. And so we got into an argument and he said, oh, race is more important than class. And so I said to him, and this person was a, a white person, and so I said to him, okay, would you rather be Jay-Z or you? Mm-hmm. And I like to think that won the argument, but yeah. that's, I'm biased. No, I, I think I, I, I 100% would say you're correct that, you know, in, in the United States, there is this pervasive reality of race. And I would say the way that, you know, to some extent, if you're, it's regional. Like where you're at, there's an idea that race will definitely trump kind of class. And that's in the South. And if you were a poor white person, right, the reality of living as a poor white person is you can construct 
a reality where, you know, you look at yourself, you look at your condition, and you still believe that you are better than someone that is black. Um, but if you look at kind of the dominant structures of, 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 of uh, the modern Western world, yeah, and particularly if you look at, the, if you classify it as a Western world versus an America-centric uh, uh, Western world, then you will see that it is it is a class it is a class struggle. But this is what what I think is fundamentally problematic, though, about the class struggle is we live in a capitalist world, and and you know what prevents this idea of of a class struggle from happening. <clears throat> I would say in America, a lot of it is race. But if you take even race out of it, like if race didn't exist in America, class ide- ideology and class struggle and class identity would not would not develop. And the thing that I'd suggest keeps that from from developing as our is, is you know mark said that religion was the opiate of the masses right i believe it's consumption hmm. in the 21st century and in the western construct what makes westerners feel and what may, prevents westerners from coming together is not um race <laughs> uh it, it's 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 consumption that we can buy and consume and believe that we are all middle class, right? And that's what's that's I that's that's what really prevents people from from joining based on like yeah we might be middle class but what does that truly mean? Are we right? If you look at the data, the data suggests yeah we might be better than some people, but the masses are still living uh, and, and struggling. So, all right, African Americans, France. Oh yeah, so black people in France. So black Americans in France. So uh, in the early twentieth uh, century, you know, coming off this low point in U.S. Uh, in, in racial relations between black people and white people, African Americans were really struggling to find leadership, but more importantly, motivation and different means to, to bring about civil and equal rights and. Uh, World War One was this really big catalyst to it. It was this huge eye-opening moment that there was a big possibility for white people and black people to live together. And for many black people, this experience was shown uh, in, uh, in, in, in France, uh, and particularly in the cities of France where African Americans that had served over there that were on leave in cities experienced something dramatically different. And part of the reason why they did this is that the vast majority of black people in the early 20th century, up until World War One, and then you know ended in World War Two, lived in the South um, um, because of things like the Great Migration, which brought brought black people out of the South to the North, spurred on by World War One. You know, most black people that went to France they were Southerners, so what they knew about race relations in the South was dramatically different than a black person that was integrated. And part of the racial code was if you saw a white person on the sidewalk, you got off. Part of the racial code was you never looked a white woman in the eye. Part of the racial code was you always referred to someone as uh, uh, was white as sir or ma'am. Um, you had to always be put in a subordinated position. As a black man, you were never called a man. You were called a boy. Um, once you got to the point of being an old person, about 50 or 60 years old, you were then called uncle. Right, but never was there this process in the South of, of calling a black person uh, a man or a woman. It was always a pejorative that was used to put them in a, a situation where they were demeaned, but also held in a, in, a, in, a, in a subordinated position. And 
initially what what happened is you know many African Americans at a higher rate signed up for World War One, and part of it was they saw enlisting in the war um, as this opportunity for them uh, to demonstrate that they were Americans, right? that they truly fit into this country, um, that they were willing to defend this country. And in doing so, they wanted to put to rest these really old stereotypes that blacks were afraid that if there was a, a incidence of violence that they would run away, that they didn't have the intellectual capacity to fight or to lead. And so they volunteered at a higher rate than any other group in the nation in the initial phase of, of World War One, and to, to fight uh, uh, overseas. And what's interesting is that uh, you have the United States that initially wanted to keep blacks segregated. Uh, the United States that wanted to keep Americans from fighting alongside um, people that were British or that were French. Except for they decided that we're going to put some groups and integrate them in and, and, and put them under uh, French control. And in doing this, there's really just this huge impact on uh, uh, this effect on what black people understand is possible for them living alongside and, and, and having relationships with white people, and particularly Southern African Americans. And what happens is they go overseas, and uh, not only do they serve with distinction and fight well, um, which is demonstrated in the Harlem Hellfighters of 369th. The 369th is put under the command of uh, the uh, French Expeditionary Forces, these are American Expeditionary Forces fighting under French command. And these people just uh, demonstrate this you know, unparalleled kind of commitment to, to the war. Um, I think 171 uh, troops and officers are given the French Corps de Guerre. Um, they're decorated with honor. They serve longer than any other regiment uh, in the United States regiment in foreign command in, 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 in France. And so you see these people that not only demonstrate their bravery overseas, but then see or experience what is dramatically different when they're on leave. And that's what I think is important. And understanding uh, my, my, what I studied at Ball State as, as, as a historian was cultural history of France, the interwar period, um, World War One, and what I really came to understand is the impact that African Americans had on French culture um, for the brief time they were there. United States doesn't jump in into the war till uh, a year and a half till the war's over, and when they get in, you know, African Americans don't serve long. But one of the biggest impacts they have long lived is jazz music. <laughs> Before black people came to France, jazz music isn't there, and um, jazz music is kind of renowned throughout the world as this. Uh, African-American uh, uh, contribution to uh, society, and it is one of these uh, forms of music that is just replete throughout uh, throughout uh, France, but I would say in general throughout Europe. But when they're on, in France, in Paris, when they are on leave, the first thing these black soldiers understand is racism doesn't exist, right? There might be ideas of class, um, there might be some in French culture that look down at them, but by and large, French culture is this integrated hodgepodge of, of various groups that doesn't suggest like that French colonialism isn't this power structure that dominates over these colonial groups that comes from this idea of, 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 of you know, this civilizing mission, miss, you know, this miss, mission civilisatrice that still exists, 
But if you are a black person, you know, the biggest thing that you would probably experience is you can walk down the sidewalk and feel comfortable and feel free to just be you on the sidewalk. Right? You don't have to monitor who you are. You don't have to monitor where you look. You don't have to be in this this regulated box of my existence is if I'm in public and if it's an integrated world, I have to look down. If I'm at my community, my eyes are always on my feet. Because if they're not, if you don't know, if you come into gays with a white woman, that is a horrible fence where you could literally be burned at the stake. Um, you don't have to jump off the sidewalk if you happen to come in contact or, 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 or interact with someone that happens to be white. So as a black person, right, the biggest liberty you feel initially would be, I can walk down these streets feeling as though I'm going to be unmolested. Then no one's going to try to beat me. No one's going to try to uh, kill me, to burn me, to hang me from, from, from uh, a noose and from a tree because I make some small cultural faux pas. Um, and that's a huge realization of many African Americans. The realization that, wait a second, I'm a human being, right? Like I can walk down this world and walk in a white world that's dominated culturally by white people that aren't <laughs> concerned with what I'm doing, right? With, with how I'm living my life, right? They're concerned with what they're doing with their own lives. Uh, I would say the next biggest thing that, that really is unique is when they go into a pub or a bar, right? When they go into a pub or bar, typically they're segregated. But one of the things they quickly come to understand is that, wait a second, I can go into any pub, I can go into any restaurant, I can go into any theater. If I go into a theater, I don't have to enter and go upstairs to the balcony or into a segregated section. If I enter a restaurant, I don't have to go in through the back door into a segregated section. Instead, I can walk through the front door, my head held up high. Um, I can wear this uniform that designates me as an American soldier and not feel for fear of my life. Because what happens to many American soldiers is when they return in World War, after World War One. it's called Red Summer, the summer of 1919. Uh, it's, it's this massive peak of racial violence and racial riots throughout the South. Uh, and a lot of it is driven by soldiers that are lynched and killed merely for wearing their medals or wearing their uniforms down the street during a celebration. And so they understand that they can wear their uniforms without being attacked, wear their uniforms without any fear. And when they go into a pub or they go into a restaurant, they can enter into the front door. Right? They don't have to sit in a segregated section. They don't have to worry about uh, who they dance with. Right? They don't have to worry about playing jazz music and dancing with anyone that is on the dance floor. Liberty. right? It's this huge construct that, that African Americans come back with. Right? The United States always professes this idea of liberty, but the French idea of liberty is dramatically different than the American idea of liberty. The American idea of liberty is a lot smaller than the French idea of liberty, right? The French is way more radical. You have the period, you know, uh, uh, the Red Terror and the Jacobins, which some people look on as horrible, but it is this moment where people dramatically through violence try to reconstruct society, which oftentimes is necessary. Um, whereas American liberty, it didn't take this process of purging people that necessarily, you know, colluded or conspired with the British. 
Right? The most you really had is tarring and feathering. You didn't have mass executions. Right? So liberty from the American construct is pretty passive. And this is one of the things in the Trump era that I find fascinating is that you have this idea of a passivity that exists among the dominant middle class and the dominance of the culture, which is you live and you do well, right? You don't take bold action. Whereas in France, African-Americans understood that liberty is not constructed for a small group of people. That everyone has liberty and liberty is not based on a skin color. Sure, there might be a class idea to liberty, but this notion is that in French culture, liberty is for everyone, and everyone has a right to it. And everyone's relationship with their government is dramatically different. Everyone has the right to go out and protest. Um, and that's what black people come to understand, because in the American construct, particularly before World War One, the idea of being an African-American that wanted to go out and protest was deadly and dangerous. It meant that you were going to get killed you were going to get strung up from a tree riddled with bullets lit on fire and you know eight to ten thousand people would show up and and and, and cut you know uh souvenirs off your body pieces of flesh your nose your genitalia your toes right take pictures and buy postcards and cheer about it right that's the reality of, of being a person that resisted um or being a person that spoke up for black rights or black nationalism this idea that you have power as an african-american was oftentimes met with a church being burned, uh, if not you being lynched, you being ostracized, having the inability to be able to integrate or connect with the economic community in the South, not being able to get a contract as a uh, sharecropper or, or tenant farmer, not being able to get loans from banks, having to move around, go west, or move up north. But when African Americans go to France, they come to understand that this is a liberty that... that you are entitled to, um, and that you need to fight for. You need to, and this is really the French idea. You need to organize for right this concept that you don't. These things don't just happen sporadically. There's a process. There's an organization that occurs, and I think that's what Black people see. They see this this future that is possible, and they come back determined to um, bring that future alive in in the United States, and it leads to things like the. Uh, Harlem Renaissance uh, things to concepts like the New Negro, where you know previous to World War One, African Americans they resisted the system. It wasn't you know a mass that was had enough inertia to to really bring about change. It was you know strong people, big individuals, some grassroots organizations throughout churches, but there wasn't a huge compulsion among African-Americans to actively engage. And by, you know, at the end of the war in 1918, the NAACP is 12 years old, right? So you have this, this, this organization that has the structures to put, you know, and fight for policy. They also get, you know, a lot more African-Americans that become wealthy during World War I, building ships, building machinery for guns, right, and that they can spend. Uh, and then they get African-American soldiers and veterans that return home that join, that are determined to bring about the ideas of the war, um, the things that are articulated from the aspect of, of, of the French and uh, the Americans and the British, this idea uh, of, of democracy, right? What is democracy? And to 
Americans, democracy is a very limited D. Small D democracy. You know, this fundamentally this republic was born from elite, you know, planters, mostly southern white men that owned lots of slaves and some northern industrialists that saw, you know, Protestants and a few Catholics as the people that were, you know, wealthy enough and the ethic and moral capacity to lead. Meaning, these are the people that can vote, right? Whereas, you know, the French Revolution <laughs> is not born in that. Right? The French Revolution is born in this idea that, you know, initially, right, everyone <laughs> can participate in our democracy. Right? There's a period where they try to roll that back, but fundamentally what it opens up is this concept that democracy from the, the beginning of the French Revolution and, and, and in French culture, liberty is for everyone. It's not just for this small group of elites. In America, it has expanded without a doubt in the 21st century. But it's taken a process. Um, and that's what's different that happens for the black experience in World War I. Is that they see that you fundamentally have this right. That there is no reason why you shouldn't fight for this. You don't need to wait right now. You know, do as the French do. <laughs> go out to the streets and protest. And if that doesn't work, do as you know, African Americans do when they come back. Which is, right, we understand that protest is very good. Right, protest works, but we also understand you need to fight this way through the American system and through legislation. Right, you need to slowly chip away, building up precedent to hack away at Plessy v. Ferguson that that, legal, that legalizes segregation in this country. But I don't think without World War One, the experience of the soldiers getting the training, the experience of Black people in the United States moving from the South to the North, people becoming middle class, that that would have been possible, um, and and. You know, the black experience in France really paved the way for the modern civil rights movement. And, and, and that is through this determination that comes out. And, and that determination is reflected in what uh, uh, African-American historians and black and, and historians in the United States in general would call, you know, the new Negro. And the new Negro is this kind of this idea, this idea of what it means to be black. And... It's dramatically different than previous to that. Right? Previous to World War One, what it meant to be black was to mimic what white culture, and particularly white Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, gave to the United States. Right. So if you were African American that wanted to get into poetry, right, you would write and you would mimic right and the themes and the ideas of really great white Anglo-Saxon poets. Um, after World War One, during the New Negro. African Americans look at their own culture, and I, and I would say that this is a reflection of the experience they have in France, which is you know black culture and black people come from something, right, and and uh, they have something to uh, contribute to society, and to some extent I would see that reflected in in in, in as I talked about previously what black people got uh, or gave to France and gave to Europe, which is this concept of jazz music, right, this society this new form of music that is dramatically different than anything uh, uh, that Europeans had experienced at this time. Um, and jazz music and, and, and uh, the genesis of jazz music is rooted in this, this struggle of African Americans. It's rooted on the plantation. It's rooted in uh, the integration of black culture uh, with ideas that come from Western uh, white Anglo-Saxon culture that come from, you know, German culture that, that is really huge in the United States. 
um, that come from uh, Welsh culture, that come from Scottish culture, that come from Irish culture, that blended into this 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 genre of music that dramatically changes how uh, how we perceive uh, how music is constructed. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash FRENCHHISTORY50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Previous to jazz music, Western culture primarily had this really rigid, super organized construct of music. That this is how music is produced. That although there might be emotion that comes out of it, right? The music is played in this really passive, uh, this 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 uh, this this method that is takes the entertainer and the producer out of the music that they produce, right? And the highest achievement they could do is to play it exactly as written, whereas with jazz, it's the highest thing you can do is to make it your own. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly. That that previous to that is let's make this music that is completely like what this person intended that is here, and it doesn't change, right? And I think that's that's what the New Negro is about, is that instead of trying to mimic right, this white Anglo-Saxon culture, what they're going to look at is what are the contributions of black people to this broader culture? And those contributions aren't just African, right? They're black. And that's what's unique about, you know, black Americans. It's not just this construct of that ultra-African culture influenced black Americans. It's this idea that black Americans were influenced by African culture, Native American culture, white Anglo-Saxon culture, German culture, Irish culture, Welsh culture, Scottish culture, right? Because these are the people that they were surrounded with on the plantations, right? Typically, the plantation slave driver, the overseer is, uh, is someone that is either Welsh, Scottish, or Irish. This is the typical ethnicity of a, of, of a, of a uh, southern white person's, you know, uh, slave driver. Um, typically, um, the owner, right, is a rich white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Right, kind of one of these newer Protestant denominations, you know, that is, you know, uh, very different from the uh, Anglican Church, and these individuals see themselves dramatically different from that overseer that is Welsh or Scottish or Irish, dramatically different from that German, dramatically different from the Catholic, and more importantly, dramatically different from the African American. But they're all kind of sharing and swapping genetics. <laughs> 
They're sharing and swapping stories. They're sharing and swapping musical ideas and musical styles, ways of telling story, ways of commemorating. And this is where kind of jazz explodes out of, and, and this idea of the new Negro, that black people have this, this cultural hodgepodge, this soup that is just integrated within them as this un culture that is dramatically different from others that come in the United States. And it is this influence that is important to uphold, right? This, this, this diversity of ideas that, come, that comes within black culture and that is reflected in jazz music, as you say, right? It's this idea that we can come up with this style that looks like it has um, this really rigid interpretation that must be played uniquely. But then you have the individual that even if he's playing the same exact music, does it in a style, uh, in a beat, in a tonation that is completely on, right, musically, but is totally different. And that's this new Negro that comes out of, uh, comes out of the experiences on the home front and the experience overseas, serving along French soldiers on the front, serving... Uh, on the home front and serving uh, on leave in, in, in Paris and, and, and other French cities. So that's pretty fantastic. So why then, when you have this sort of rebirth of, or I should just say birth of mm -hmm. uh, black pride and this consciousness of there can be another way, why doesn't World War One produce the civil rights movement? Why does that take till much later? Yeah, I mean, it's the fundamental problem in the United States, right? And in the United States, yeah, the fundamental problem is this construct that most people can ignore, which is race. And even though in the modern era, racism exists, it's not as it was in World War, after World War I, right? And as historians, we look at it from this idea of... Uh, De jure racism, right, uh, and de facto racism, right. And in 1918, at the end of World War One, what existed in the United States was something called de jure racism, which is racism of juris or racism by law. So when African Americans return, if you're not living in the North, if you're living in the South, or even if you're living in the North, like Indiana, lived in the state of Indiana, one of the most racist states I've ever lived in in the history of the United States but also has a deep history of the Underground Railroad, and that's like the contradiction of the United States, is that, you know, you have, when these soldiers return, if they live in Massachusetts, right, they live in a state that doesn't have de jure racism, right? It doesn't have racism by law. They go to schools that are integrated. They can go to a restaurant. They can go to a bar. They don't have to get off a of sidewalk. If you live in Indiana, which is a northern state, then you're going to go to segregated pool, segregated theater, segregated school. If you live in the Deep South, you're going to, or even in the South, you're going to go to these segregated areas as well. And these are all upheld by law. So as black people, they might come back with these aspirations. But what they lack is the ability to put those aspirations into practice where the vast majority of blacks live. And that's because of de jure racism. And what ends up happening is as they come back, there is this initial phase of the civil rights movement that is rarely looked at, right? So typically when people look at the civil rights movement in the United States, the black civil rights movement, they look at it in 1954 and they'll say, you know, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her, her, her seat on the bus. 
But the reality is, right, the timeline for the civil rights movement is being pushed back. And after World War One, African Americans really start to put their finances and their effort into this first phase of the civil rights movement that's called legalism. And this is trying to get at Plessy versus Ferguson, which is an 18, I believe it's 1896 Supreme Court case um, that involved a African-American that was like one-tenth black. But in the United States, the rule was the one-drop rule. And that's one drop of black blood, you are black. So Homer Plessy lived in Louisiana and New Orleans. He was from the upper middle class black community. Um, and he was a mulatto and he tried to get on a train and sit in the non-integrated section. They put him to the back of the train, the segregated section. He sued, went to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court said separate but equal. Right? Segregation is legal in this country as long as it's separate but equal. And African Americans returned from World War One. Many have more money. Many leave the South for the North. And you see the development of a bigger black middle class with the Harlem Renaissance and the New Negro. And many start to put their money into the civil uh, into the NAACP. And when they put their money in the NAACP, the NAACP starts to fight and build up, which is the, is the process in the United States, which is build up precedent right, to win small cases, to to fight Plessy versus Ferguson. And what they try to do is show this idea of this concept of separate but unequal. And this is the initial phase. And so it's really this long process of Right, let's slowly start chipping away and let's slowly start to get cases that we can win that eventually will lead to you know, Brown v. Board in 1954. And so that's why it really takes a while for you see to start to see some of the legal constructs uh, uh, get torn down because de jure racism is, is, is throughout the land. So as long as right, you have a separate facility, right, it, it can be... It, it can be legal as long as it's supposedly legal. So the recourse for African Americans is to show that these facilities are, are, are not equal. And that's what ends up happening. Is um, the NAACP, you know, in the nineteen twenty sorry, nineteen thirties, right, really starts to fight using their legal defense fund and um, Supreme Court Justice, uh, first African American Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall to to fight uh, and build up uh, cases in the Supreme Court and win cases uh, to eventually, you know, attack Plessy, win the 1954 Brown v. Uh, Brown Beef Board that chips away at one of the things of of of, um, of uh, de jure racism. Then the other thing is de facto, which is racism by practice, and this is really what still goes on in the United States. That is very hard for many people to see and for many people to interpret. Um, which is oftentimes, like, as a black person, one of the things that bugs me is I hear oftentimes, like, why don't you just get over it? And it's, like, such a weird thing because you don't ever hear people saying, you know, Jews, just get over the Holocaust. But in the United States, you always hear white people say, why can't you just get over slavery? And that's part of the problem is white people see the construct in the United States just as slavery. So that when slavery ended, right, everything was fine, right? They don't happen to recognize, right, that you know, legal racism existed up until 1964 and 65, the Civil Rights Act and, this, and the Voting Rights Act. Um, and this is, I think, another big piece, is that a lot of white people think that we're so removed from that, whereas black people understand in this country that we're not. Like, my grandma just turned 96. 
right? So my grandma was born in like 1923, right? So she had a great-grandparent that she knew that was a slave. That's how close to slavery I am, right? I am, you know, two great-grandparents away. My mom is a great-grandparent away, right? My grandma's a great, I say my mom's a great-great-grandparent or great-grandparent. My, my grandma's a great-grandparent away, right? And she's still alive. And this is, for, for most black people, is the continuity of, of slavery, the continuity of the civil rights movement, the continuity of lynching, of racial violence. And it's, I think, very hard for white Americans to see that, that, that there's this huge continuity that continues, uh, that you might not, it's not being upheld in the 21st century by legal racism, but it's being upheld by the people who had you know, kids who had kids that have this idea that is continually per, uh, perpetuated on them, right? That might not necessarily be, you know, I think black people don't need to live with me, but leads to apathy and leads to inaction. So we talked about the influence of World War One. Um, what about World War Two? Was this just sort of a repeat of World War One, or did it have any other definitive effects on the black community yeah so world war one right is this process where you have um men like wb du bois who was a northern raised black liberal and intellect first african-american to get his uh phd from harvard and social and and, and and sociology um that supported the united states in world war one you have uh, African-Americans like Booker T. Washington that also support the United States' engagement in World War I. So by and large, black leadership, rich, middle class, wealthy, uh, and even poor in the clergy supported the United States, uh, Americans, African-Americans getting into World War I. And they did this from this perspective that this is going to be the war that we fight, that we serve, that we serve with distinction, that we show America that we are Americans. Right. And so that's part of like the experience. Right. They're like, we're determined. They go and fight. They serve in France. They fight with distinction. Um, you know, they understand, come back, understanding that integration is possible. But then they get into this huge wall that is de jure racism. Um, they get into uh, this cesspool of white supremacy, which is white violence. And this is I think that's hard for many people to understand is the nature of white violence in this country, right? That's what I think is is difficult to, for people to really see. I think, by and large, the broad base of the population doesn't know about the capacity of violence that happened to white to Black Americans, um, and then they also think it's just something that is of the past. Um, and as a Black person, you know it, and you've always known it, right? You've always known that. There is this reality that no matter where you are or what class you are or what wealth you build up in this country, that white Americans can decide at any moment to, you know, destroy your community or even destroy your home and your life. Like you look at, um, you know, racial violence in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Tulsa race riots. And these are a big thing that happens in the interwar period between World War One and World War II or what are called race riots. You know the year? Uh, Tulsa race riot? No, I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know the year. I want to say maybe it might be nineteen, maybe nineteen nineteen two uh, during Red Summer. Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily know the year. But it's during the interwar period. Um, and then you have Red Summer nineteen nineteen. So, you know what these race riots are? Race riots are a euphemism, right? They're this this idea that okay, it's a riot that's happening on both sides. But no, 
Right. Race riots always mean, particularly in the 20th century, early 20th century, that white communities riot against black communities. And in Tulsa, there was this wealthy black community that was called the Black Wall Street because there was a lot of black businesses, a lot of black banks, uh, white Americans that were jealous and fearful of this community rioted. And they burned down the black business. They, in essence, ran African-Americans out of Tulsa. I think there's something, the estimates are something like $1.8 million lost in black, black wealth. Um, but accompanying you know, race riots in Tulsa, you also have them in other cities. And then you have uh, lynchings that occur. And so black Americans come back to this wall that says you know, success is always limited by right, this, not only de jure racism, but racial violence. So during the Vietnam War, there was a very famous episode where uh, Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, said, why should I go to war? No Vietnamese ever called me Nick, the N-word. Exactly. Oh, exactly, okay. Yeah. I'll let no, you no, say No, no, no Vietnamese ever called me? Yeah. So, that, so why didn't this happen with World War One, World War Two? Why is it that the black community yeah. was so ready to fight yes, there but yeah. didn't with Vietnam? Uh, because... They saw World War I as this opportunity to show allegiance, that we are going to fight and that we're going to come back and we're going to get that respect. But they come up against that wall. They're lynched. They're killed. Um, so it changes in World War II. World War II, African Americans no longer say this idea that we're going to go and fight for democracy, right, that, that Wilson said, right, we're going to make the world safe for democracy is Wilson's argument for getting us in, in, in World War I. African Americans saw this as like, yeah, that democracy means us, right? So we're going to come back and we're going to get some of this democracy, and they don't. So World War II, they come up with this idea of the double V campaign. And the double V campaign is when African Americans say, sure, we're going to fight V for victory against fascism overseas, but we're also going to have V for victory against racism, discrimination, and segregation at home. So dramatically different idea when blacks go and serve in World War II. It's this idea that is coming from Du Bois, that is coming from African-American leadership, people like uh, A. Philip Randolph, that we're going to fight, and this fight is not going to stop when fascism is ended overseas. This is a fight that's going to continue overseas, right? victory overseas, and a fight that's going to continue V for victory at home. So I, I would say that this is really... Dramatic and part of it, you know, kind of the tie into Cassius Clay, um, gets back to uh, uh, the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis, right? Getting back into boxing, right? The Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis, you know, really relates to kind of Ali. Joe Lewis was this kind of stand up African American, this African American that uh, uh, fought uh, Max Schmeling, right? This, this, this German heavyweight boxer that Hitler idolized, right, as like this ideal German. Um, and Schmeling ended up beating Brown, uh, or sorry, uh, the Brown Bomber ended up beating Joe Lewis in their first match. Uh, Joe Lewis fought him again, I believe it was 1942, when Joe Lewis fought Max Schmeling. And this was kind of this first really big fight against uh, fascism, right? And it was, what's interesting about Joe Lewis is he was one of these African Americans as well that firmly believed in this idea of double V, right? That you can fight um, and you can fight for fasc against fascism overseas, but you can come back and you can fight against fascism uh, uh, at the home front. And Joe Lewis 
uh, initially fights Max Schmeling uh, in 1936. And Max Schmeling destroyed Joe Lewis in 1936. Um, Joe Lewis then comes back uh, and he has a rematch against Max Schmeling. And Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis fight again. Uh, and that fight begins in New York City in 1938 when they have their rematch. And in 1938, what's, what's great about this is that it's, just, it's America not fighting um, each other. right? It's America fighting Nazi Germany. So white Americans and black Americans, after Lewis knocks Schmeling out and knocks him on the ground, are in the streets cheering together for this American. And that's what blacks firmly want to happen, right? They see this moment under, like, sports and under, right, this athlete, like, this idea that, wait a second, we can achieve this. But, right, Max, uh, but Joe Lewis, once again, he's this African-American that people believe in, that has to market himself, so he's pretty moderate, right? He's not going to be outwardly speaking out against the racism that goes on on the home front. Instead, he'll choose to right, support the NAAC, put his money to fixing that. Whereas by 1968, right, you have, you have the black power movement. Right? You have African-Americans that aren't necessarily, that move way past this idea of the new Negro, right? that we need to look at black culture. Not only do they say we need to look at black culture, but we need to have this idea that we need to be openly proud of who we are as black people. Right, and this I think is most reflected in the Black Power era in the in the Afro. Right, this idea that, right, I have these people that really are. I have so many friends that are super against cultural relativism. Right, it's one of these things that really bugs me. People that say right, uh, cultural relativism is 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 not founded. Right, it's not. It doesn't exist. Um, and then I and I'll say you know this idea that so um, if cultural relativism doesn't exist, then why does a black person have to you know, keep their hair cut short and comb and, and, and comb their hair or straighten their hair, particularly a black woman if they want to get a job as a CEO. Cultural relativism doesn't exist, and why can't black people be in their culturally natural state, which is, or at least their hair, which is, right, which is to grow in an afro or grow in dreadlocks, right? Well, why do you put these constructs, right? So the idea of cultural relativism is, is kind of unfounded. But blacks in the, you know, black power era say, you know, it's reflected in their hair, right? This idea that we don't have to be, live in this construct of this white world where, 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 where we're told that our natural beauty is, it needs to be hidden in order to fit and to be successful. And that's what Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, really meant in that statement, that, you know, that, that in the United States, the construct that's keeping black people down is not communism and particularly like, like, like Ho Chi Minhism, right? It's not Ho Chi Minhism that's keeping black people from prospering. It's Right, white Anglo-Saxon capitalism, right? It's white Anglo-Saxon imperialism that's keeping black people down. And so, you know, why should he go fight to sub, sub, you know, subjugate those people to, 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 the, to those impulses of, you know, white Anglo-Saxon capitalist society uh, when, when that society is just as oppressive against him? And that's very different from, you know, uh, from Joe Lewis. And it's very different from World War II. Even though blacks are like, we're going to fight for victory at home, it's not this idea that we're going to get militant about it, that we're going to um, 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 be in people's face about it, that we're going to be unabashedly afraid about it. It still is this idea that we're going to conform to 
the Anglo-Saxon ideas of society, right? We're going to still wear a suit, right? We might be, be believe in our art and our music, but we're not going to keep it right in your, in, in your face. So let me ask you a question then, because France did play this pivotal role in awakening black consciousness to a potentially other way of living, possibly having the same liberties as whites. But what's interesting is that at the same time that black Americans were coming over and being treated roughly as equals, the black colonials of the French Empire were still very much not being treated that way. In fact, the tirailleurs Senegalais, when they came over, uh, essentially the, uh, the, in English it would be the Senegalese mm -hmm. uh, infantry, they were not allowed to interact with white women. Uh, they were not allowed. They were, the French army tried to not let them actually engage in combat mm -hmm. because they didn't want black people to be able to kill white people mm -hmm. because obviously that might lead to some danger. So did that play out at all in uh, black experience, this knowledge that maybe France wasn't so great a place for black people in general, even if it was for them? No, right? And that's really like the contradiction of French history and French liberty, the idea of French liberty, right? Like, like imperialism and colonialism really, I would say, in, in kind of the development of the Western capitalist world and Western capitalist hegemony, I would argue is one of the things that is, that is most openly in the modern era uh, being overlooked. And in part, it's being overlooked because, I mean, if you look at people that are kind of centered, people that are, you know, whether it's center right or center left, they have a tendency to believe that the Western world and Western way of living is the, you know, the, the correct way of living. That's brought us to this point. So it must obviously be, be, be good. But if you look at the vestiges of, of colonialism, and if you look at French colonialism, like you say, um, and, and, and African colonial troops, it's very reflective of how they modeled their, 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 their colonial empire. Yeah, they wanted to make little Frenchmen, as long as they were willing to stay right where they were, right? As long as they're willing to stay in Senegal, right? As long as they're willing to stay in Algeria, as long as they're willing to stay in Vietnam. Uh, when they want to come and make this kind of multicultural French culture, you know, if you look at World War I era, uh, if you look really up until the 1960s, I mean, French culture was pretty resistant. And to some extent, it's, it, I would say it's, it's resistant in some extent today. I mean, if you look at the way, if you look at the way the French... You know, metropolitan is, is, is structured, particularly Paris. You look on the outskirts, and it's primarily people of brown skin that, that live on the outskirts versus that live in the inner city. Um, I would say that that's really the biggest thing we have to confront in, in Western society, is how do we reconcile the vestiges of things like colonialism and imperialism? And um, as I was, you know, I was reading uh, kind of a Facebook post of, of one of my friends earlier, um, and they were talking about, you know, African-Americans and Native Americans are really kind of one of the few people that are stuck in colonialism. Right? Like, if you look at, you know, my ancestors, my ancestors were brought over here as slaves, right? I still live in that colonial society. I still live subjugated. I've never had my revolution, right? My own ability to go and determine my fate or my people's fate outside of this, this construct that was built for me. Right, where if you look at like colonial Africa, you look at colonial Asia, they've had this idea, let's go and break free of, of, of whether it's French colonialism, whether it's white Anglo-Saxon colonialism, British colonialism, 
whereas me as an African American or as a Native American, we still have to deal with these contracts. This, these are the, this is our reality, right? We're never gonna, you know, uh, uh, extricate ourselves from, you know, the the idea that we are the colonized people. Instead, we have to figure out how we can, how we could construct a society that's more just, uh, that that that's more egalitarian and. Um, just as the French have issues, right? The Americans, like in this society in the United States, we have way more issues as, as, as race is concerned, right? Yeah, sure. African-Americans did not see how black troops were treated. And that's in part because of the dramatic differences from the African experience to the African-American experience. And this is, you know, to be quite frank, this is reflected in the 21st century and the 20th century United States. Right? Africans that come and immigrate to the United States, one... They do better than African Americans. You look statistically, right? You look at Africans that immigrate to the United States. They score better on on academic tests. Um, they go to better schools, right? They 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 have they perform way better on on, on, on metrics than than African Americans. And part of that, I would say, is because they're choosing to come over here. You have a group from the small, really tiny, freaking, uh, 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 yeah, this really tiny group, right? This really small subset that chooses to leave, that has the finances to leave, um, that come over here, and, uh, and and I would say, of course, they're going to have a better outcome because they have a way better motivation. Whereas you have black people that have been poor here, that have seen nothing but poverty, that don't see any way out of poverty, that it's been there since their ancestors were held as slaves in poverty, that are stuck there. And so as an African, if you come over here, you see those people that are stuck there and you see that, wait, they're not working hard, right? As an, I came over here and I worked hard, right? You don't see all the structures that like, keep them and have kept them down versus the structures that keep you down. So there's a very big disconnect between African communities and African-American communities. They're very different in the United States. And there's a lot of, I mean, to be quite fair, there's a lot of hostility. So let me ask this question then, because France for at least uh, 40, 50 years, was very important to African Americans. We talked World War One, World War II. Um, does France mean anything to African Americans today? Um, hmm. Not I, so much. Yeah, I would say no, right? I'd say probably most, most African Americans don't see, don't really kind of pay attention to what's going on with France or, or, or the reality of... of, of of French culture, I'd say maybe if you were a black person that's in the jazz music, right? If you're if you are, uh, you know, in, you know, if you're producing jazz music, without a doubt, you know the importance of France. Right? <laughs> you know that like you are going, you're you like yes, you're doing a European tour, right? You know, <laughs> France is like, boom, it's the center of it, right? But outside of that, I would say no. Um, and part of it is as 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 most Americans, and this is the, this is a total freaking judgment on, on, on American education system. Most Americans don't understand history. Well, one more thing that I, I would just bring up is that uh, it seems like there was a, a turn against the American system before there was a turn against the French because, of course, in the American system, Civil Rights Act, Civil Rights Movement, mm -hmm. And then with France, I think the big turn where France had its reckoning with its racial past was really Algeria. And of yes, course, you have exactly. the, the yeah. very important uh, black writer, mm -hmm. France mm -hmm. Fanon, mm -hmm. yeah. who wrote about it. Uh, it was White Masks, Black Faces, I believe. 
Yeah, I, no, you're completely right. Algeria is really the kind of this this transition in French France to becoming this truly multicultural liberal society, right? I mean, if you look at modern France, and you know, I, I went to France last year, only Charles de Gaulle Airport, but it was it was dramatically different from my reality in Oregon. That's very white. You know, it was it was it was you know this this multicultural society where like I walk in the airport and like it was like black and brown people everywhere. <laughs> and they're integrated, and, 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 and yes, there might be kind of class segregation that exists, I would say, anywhere, right? We've got to recognize and call things that where, where they're at. And particularly if you look at France, like classism, uh, tends tend to be brown and black. But, right, structurally, the system is, is dramatically different because if you're a black person, a person of color in France in the modern era, right, you might be judged, but you're not being judged on your color as much as you're being judged on your class. And 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 that, and that, whereas the American construct, um, the judgment is is still really on 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 your race first, right? And and um, yeah, we understand through like O.J. Simpson, right? <laughs> this idea that like money talks, bullshit walks. It doesn't matter what color you are. If you've got money, you can buy your way out of anything in this country, right? That's the American system. Um, but if you look at like if you look at rates of people that are incarcerated for drug use. For drug crimes, people that are sentenced to to death for murder, it's overwhelmingly overwhelmingly black people and people pe- people of color. Overwhelmingly black people in the United States and African Americans that, that that are sentenced to this. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, it's 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 the United States has not we have not reconciled race. Right, that's that's fundamentally what has never happened. We've I, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about reparations. Reparations are stupid. Part of the reason why I think reparations are stupid, I would love to be like repaid for that, right? But like the vast majority of white culture in the United States is not going for it. So why would you start out from this really bad position of irritating a huge chunk of the population versus let's come up with some common sense ideas of, of, of getting along, right? And so that's why that's why I don't like the concept or the idea of like let's talk about reparations, right? Instead of let's talk about reparations, let's talk about better schools, right? Uh, let's talk about better hospitals, right? Um, let's talk about better home ownership, right? Property ownership. Uh, let's talk about better outcomes as it relates to uh, the the person the pipeline pot, you know, you know. Uh, 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 Road. I mean, it gets back to what you were saying with uh, with Black Lives Matter and, and the statistics on, on being murdered by the cops. Fundamentally, do cops kill at a higher percentage black people? Sure. But if you look at the overall numbers, statistically, of cops killing people a year, you know, you're talking about five or 6,000 people. Let's just even say at the worst years, 10,000 people being killed by cops. Sucks. But a country of 350 million, that's statistically nothing. And you disaggregate that by race. You disaggregate that by race and people that are armed. And you get to like 180 to 200 people a year that are African American, that are unarmed, that are killed. And is that what we should be talking about versus let's talk about the segregation that's happening in our schools? Let's talk about the foundations that are created by schools that are mostly white that are able to raise $180,000 in a year to subsidize the education of their children, right, versus, right, the plight of a school that's predominantly Hispanic or black that has no foundation, no PTA to make no money or make a few hundred bucks or maybe 10000 
I mean, the reality of Portland is you have foundations that make eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year. PTAs that make eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year. They do it through things like um, having auctions. Right? They do it through things in fundraising, and that's how they make their schools better. But no one talks about that. Instead, let's talk about like, hey, right? You know, so everybody's life matter. If you focus on everyone's life matter, you don't have to care about right you sending your kid to school with people that look like your kid and people that are from your kid's class. Right, people that from your kids' wealth. Right? You don't have to pay attention on who the circle of people you surround yourself with. All right. So I think I'm all out of questions. Do you have any final thoughts, revelations, <laughs> or tidbits on France oh, and its history? Yeah. So this is what I... Man, I love French history. Like I, I love the contributions of French people to uh, world society. I think if we look at... Um, if you look at the basis of like etiquette and sitting down and eating with a fork and a knife and having a plate that's set and you look at you know the French culinary tradition um, or if you look at things like what the French mean about liberty and this is one of the things I like about you know being a person that lives in the United States and knows French history like I understand what we believe is liberty as Americans but that is so dramatically different from being like, my rights are being offended. I'm going out to the streets in mass and protesting. Well, Americans, we sit in the home. Well, essentially, I find the difference between the traditional historical view of liberty by Americans is always defined in a negative sense, whereas yeah. the French one is defined in a positive sense. And just to explain that... In France, they have libertarian parties, mm -hmm. but the libertarian parties, libertarian means exactly yeah. the opposite than here, because yeah. libertarian here means the government has basically yeah. no ability to tell you what to do, but corporations can do whatever mm -hmm. they want. Of course, Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, was in supported uh, uh, corporate-run prisons, mm -hmm and a bunch of other corporate privileges, That's right. whereas in France, mm -hmm. their libertarians believe that the government should be enormous mm -hmm. in order to ensure that everyone has the same rights. That's so right. So exactly. whereas in America, um, our traditional view of liberty has been the government isn't allowed to do things. Yeah, it's very individualistic, right? This idea that like yes. absence of government will create the best society, and getting tying this back in the race. Like, yeah, so, exactly. So... Me as a black person, you know, when Reagan... So Reagan's big shtick was, right, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. You should be afraid. As a black person, I hear that. I'm not afraid. What I'm afraid of is lack of government. And what lack of government as a black person has always meant to me is white people hunting and killing me. Right, because when the government isn't in control, you can have <laughs> you the have, majority. That's right. You have the chaos. You have the chaos that let, let's loose... Right, let's lose violence, right? And 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 that's what I guess is com comfortable about me to like the idea of French liberty is this idea that sure it might be driven by the government, but it's the idea the government is protecting the rights of the individual. Without the without the intermediary, the government, then the individual rights of the person is subjected to the will of the masses, and the will of the masses, particularly when they are bloodthirsty and they are ignorant and they happen to be racist is horrible whereas when the will of the masses is, is, is bent towards you know protecting the idea of the individual being able to be the most you know the, the most uh 
well-actuated person and human being in the world and changing the world. That's very dramatic. That's dramatically different. Yeah, the idea of American liberty and French liberty. Yeah, it's quite a difference. (laughs) You know, for all the libertarians out there, you might want to consider before saying that the next time you go to France. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.